than now. I know that a number of you have had uh, quite a journey and a long day, not just today, but everything that's involved with, with packing and getting out of town and setting up your life so, you know, your plants don't die and your cat is okay or whatever. So I'm, the talk I'm going to offer tonight is going to be... Um, a review talk, a kind of big picture talk that helps frame what we're doing here and gives you some context for it. So I'm, I'm going to um, give you the bigger picture of what we're doing here that goes beyond just the practice of sitting and walking meditation. So sitting and walking meditation, if you look on the schedule, is what you do every day, right? From early in the morning until probably at least nine o'clock at night, unless you're somebody who is on the swing shift. So walking and sitting, walking and sitting with a yogi job in there and with meal breaks and a Dharma talk, but it's, the practice is described as walking and sitting. And that's true, that's a big part of what we're doing here, but the point to be made is that that isn't the only thing that's happening. So there is a larger practice path and that practice path has a particular kind of aim and that particular aim informs everything that we actually do here. So let me do a little inventory here. How many of you feel that you could describe the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path from memory fairly easily? Put them up, claim it. Go ahead, claim it. Okay, so some folk. Some folk. So there'll be a pop quiz for you in the morning. (laughs) But... um, It's good to review some basic things so we have a uniform starting point. And everything that I'm going to cover tonight is going to be something that will be gone over again in the course of the retreat, probably from different angles and at uh, differing uh, degrees of detail. The Buddha's teachings have a lot of different dimensions and they can be described in a very detailed way. You know, you you could probably pick up a, a whole book uh, on an aspect of the path like uh, 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 wise intention or mundane wise view with cascading levels of detail that give you a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset. But I myself have the kind of mind where I like to kind of start with the big things and then once I have an idea of the bird's eye view then go back and figure out how the smaller pieces fit into it all. So the Buddhist teachings can be described in a lot of detail, but the later elaborations don't really change the basics. 
And it's the big picture, keeping the big picture in, the mo- in mind that can really guide us to skillful practice. So let me give you a very basic review of the Four Noble Truths. So you could say that the Four Noble Truths are in sequence uh, the Buddha's problem statement, uh, his assessment of what is causing the problem of human suffering, and his understanding that this suffering can be released, and the specifics of how to do that. So the first step on the uh, Four Noble Truths is that there is suffering, there's difficulty, there's unsatisfactoriness. Right? If this were not the case, then none of you would be here. So you would be enjoying your unremitting bliss and uh, uh, unbroken chain of pleasant sensory experiences forever. But we know that that's not the case. And there's a whole talk that could, probably lots of talks that can be done about dukkha, which is the Pali word for this thing we translate in English as difficulty or unsatisfactoriness or suffering or... But the Buddha starts with that. We, we have a problem here this dukkha. And then he says, well, yeah, but this dukkha that arises that we all experience, it's caused. It's not a causal. It doesn't come out of nowhere. There's a cause to this. And part of the Buddha's genius is being able to see what the cause is and understand it in remarkable depth and to see the implications that flow from this. And the Buddha says, the cause of this kind of suffering that we're talking about is uh, clinging or craving born from ignorance. So the ignorance is really the root, but it expresses itself in craving. And the Buddha says, well, it's, and then the third thing he says, it's possible to be free from this kind of suffering by addressing how it's caused and by uprooting the ignorance and letting go of the craving. In other words, it's possible to actually find a way to break this web of conditions and conditioning that cause us to suffer, that people can do this. This is possible for human beings to do. Most of you probably know that, you know, the Buddha never said that he was a god or any kind of figure like that. He said, no, I'm a human being. A human being, uh, albeit who has done a lot of homework, but a human being nonetheless. And the fourth thing that, the fourth of the noble truths is that there's a method or there's a path to do this, to become free of suffering. There's actually a plan that you can follow And if you follow this plan with diligence and with understanding, you too can free yourself from what we could call discretionary human suffering. That it is within your potential as a human being to do this. That it is possible. And here is how you do it. Here is the steps. So, then we look at this plan of the Buddha. And this plan of the Buddha to free the mind from suffering and from uh, the delusion which causes it 
is the Eightfold Path. So if you look at the first step of the Eightfold Path, you've got wise view. Wise view. So, and there's two parts of that. The first is just a reiteration of the Four Noble Truths. It's kind of like, this is how suffering, this is suffering, this is how it's caused. It can be uprooted here by this path. But the second part of it is something called mundane wise view. And what the Buddha means by this is, he said, look, the, the universe, there's a discernment here that's important to make between actions and intentions that are wholesome and actions and intentions that are unwholesome. So he said, built right into the, f- the fabric of the universe is the possibility or the option for a human being to either go in the direction of suffering and further enmeshment and craving and ignorance, or to go in the direction of increased freedom through the cultivation of what is good and what is wholesome and letting go of what is not. So some, this word wholesome is, is an interesting one, kusa, kusala, e kusala. Um, when I hear the English word wholesome, I kind of, it kind of sounds to me a little bit like white bread, you know, a little bit like, eh, a little bit goody-goody. But really, what the Buddha is saying is actions that are born out of greed, hatred, or delusion, those particular states of mind, intentions that, those kinds of intentions further cloud the mind, cause us to do things that cause suffering to ourselves and others and are themselves a state of suffering. So if you double down on that recipe, you're going to suffer more. You're going to get more confused. It's going to become more difficult. But if you understand that actions that are born out of generosity, actions that are born out of compassion, actions that are uh, born out of wisdom, these are actions that lead the body-mind system to clarity, to clarification, to opening, to the development of wisdom and many other beneficial qualities of mind that lead to increased competency, increased ability to be able to practice and increased freedom and less suffering. And he says it's important to make the distinction between those two things. Even though on retreat we practice with both wholesome and unwholesome, the discernment about which is which is an important one. So in the Buddha's world, actions have consequences, and these can be actions of body, speech, or mind. So this discernment is important. Clarity about this difference gives us the basis to cultivate our heart and mind in a desired and desirable direction. So then the next thing is what's called wise intention. 
wise intention. And it's interesting to me that this is put second. So when we're talking about wise intention, we're being told about that in order to be free, we should cultivate certain attitudes of heart and mind in particular. So there's a few things that are particularly important as orientation principles, both in the practice and and in our lives. So the Buddha says, well, the the first thing you should practice is compassion. Compassion, which also includes metta. So if we have those well-established, then we're going to automatically refrain from harming and from acting on unskillful states like hatred. Right? We're going to be less likely to take the, the road uh, into suffering. So in the course of the retreat, you're actually offered instruction in metta and in compassion practice. And you're reminded of the importance of these being recognized and strengthened. So we, we incline the mind to non-harming and to care and to goodwill in respect to ourselves and others. But we're also coached in how to bring this attitude of goodwill forward no matter what we experience. So how to bring kindness and self-support towards our endeavors here on retreat with all its highs and lows and all its beautiful and difficult terrain. Because the territory varies. And as much as anything, you could characterize these long retreats and the practices that we do here as purification practices. Which means the stuff comes up. So even when it's difficult, even when we may recognize the presence of difficult states, or states that are unskillful. Can we, in a certain kind of way, train our minds to, to bring an attitude of compassion forward when we recognize, for instance, that we're having an experience of hatred? And a second aspect of this wise intention is called renunciation. Now, this is an interesting word for Westerners. And maybe this is just a peculiarity to me. But when I hear renunciation, it kind of rhymes with denunciation. But that's not what's being said. So... To understand the instruction to cultivate renunciation, you have to remember that the Buddha sees the construction of suffering in a particular kind of way. And he says that it it is uh, expressed in craving, but it has its roots in delusion. So he says dukkha arises from that formula. Ignorance resulting in craving, resulting in grasping and then the actions that flow from that. Now, in the Buddhist system, craving is ultimately uprooted by wisdom. 
that's how it comes about. But it's not book kind of wisdom. It's uprooted by wisdom better known as non-delusion. But that's the end point. Although wisdom is developed and cultivated all along the way. But part of the path as we go along is also to constrain the operation of this deluded craving and its further enmeshment and suffering by training the mind to let go of clinging to things. Right? Our minds tend to be really sticky in relationship to things that are pleasant in particular. Right? I mean, truthfully, if we could set it up so we got an unbroken run of just things that were pleasant, and we could keep it going uh, and only improve upon it, we would go for that ride, right? All of us, we're biologically uh, conditioned in this particular kind of way to, to be looking for uh, what's potentially pleasant and wanting to hold onto it. Now, there's a loose association with our physical survival, but this tendency towards sense craving and trying to make something permanent and permanently satisfying out of things that are pleasant is a problem. And we need to come to see why this is so and how it limits us. And this is, for most of us, unwelcome news. So on retreat, we practice renunciation in a number of different ways. Um, and of course the circumstances here, even though this is a, a lovely place with you know, good people and good food and all the rest of it, it still requires us to leave behind many of our normal pleasures and preferences, right? And you'll notice this tomorrow if you're newly arrived, right? There's no latte station, right? The bathrooms are clean, but they're down the hall. You know, no en suites. So, um, and in a, a few days, for those who are newly arrived, we're going to have uh, something that we, we often do, which is to have a cell phone ritual, where we encourage those of you who have come here with digital devices to um, actually come to the front of the hall and make an offering of them in order to forego the temptation to use them and as an act of commitment and upon which we will take them and lock them up in the office. So, you know, these kinds of things that uh, are suggested and encouraged, this is very much going against the grain of the current culture. to give up the self-soothing device, the mirror, the fantasy machine. So in practice, this uh, aspect of wise um, intention that we call renunciation, is seen in the meditation instructions that you're actually given, where you're taught and encouraged 
to develop capacity to be with difficult and unpleasant experiences skillfully. So in insight meditation, we don't preference what's pleasant. So, instead we're trained to see all of what arises as it is. Of course, this is very contra to our preferences. So, such an instruction really embraces the practice of renunciation. So, it's an interesting thing that the the door to equanimity, the door to equanimity and peace and balance of mind is through the development of this very uh, counterintuitive capacity to practice with things, whether they are pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, to practice with what are called uh, the three feeling tones or uh, with, with all Vedanas. So that's part of what you're going to be learning how to do. And then the, the third, fourth, and fifth steps on the Eightfold Path have to do with wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. So these are specific instructions about how to practice wise view and wise intention in relationship to certain aspects of conduct. So this is a, a fold-out of metta and compassion and renunciation. So, and that, that discernment about what's wholesome and unwholesome. So the Buddha says, okay, while you're doing all that, here's some particular things uh, that you should take care to, to know, these things that pertain to your life. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. So on the retreat, as we're offering it here, these areas largely overlap with the precepts that you just took, right? The livelihood thing doesn't really pertain Right, unless you're, uh, I don't know, selling mining Bitcoin with your cell phone or something, I guess we would have to shut that down. But um, so there it is. So in keeping the precepts, we come into alignment with the forces of cause and effect referenced in wise view, and generate energy that helps move us along the path of non-harming and brightens the mind. So when we're living in a, in, in a way that's morally congruent, there's a kind of peace that can be there and actually become a resource for us. The, um, the beauty of non-regret, non-remorse, that at least for the period of time while we're here and practicing, we're going to be practicing non-harming by keeping the precepts. So the mind can really grow in self-respect and in confidence by doing this and by reflecting on its own morality. The Buddha uh, said once that of all the things that he liked to do, one of the the things that he liked to do the most, or one of them anyway, was to consider that in the whole universe, there was no being. 
no being anywhere that had anything to fear from him. That his, his mind was so established in non-harming and goodwill. So this ethical conduct really supports meditation because you're not churning up new stuff through unskillful action. And then the last steps are wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And these are the the three that we tend to think the retreat is all about. In particular, the last two, wise mindfulness and wise concentration. We tend to think, okay, that's what the retreat's about. And it is, as I said earlier, if you look at the schedule, that's what's going on there. But it happens within this larger frame. So if you take a look, for instance, at what's going on with wise effort, you'll see there again, it builds on the discernment the Buddha makes in mundane wise view, where he makes that distinction between wholesome and unwholesome states and actions. So if you look at at what's said in wise effort, we're called upon to... uh, prevent the arising of unwholesome suffering states or to recognize and mitigate their presence if they're there. In other words, to relate to them in a way where they take the downward trend and in relationships to states that are wholesome, that are onward leading, that are offshoots of generosity, uh, compassion, and wisdom, we're called upon to develop those states and to strengthen them and to extend them. That's the, the big picture of what's going on in terms of the effort that we're making while we're here. So then, when we look at wise mindfulness, which is what's talked about most frequently on retreat, we learn just how to do that. How to, how to work in a way that's skillful, whether the state or the experience that arises is pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. We don't care. We're developing the capacity to work with skill with whatever is there. And the magic of it is that this quality of mindfulness, this this mental factor of mindfulness, has inherent in it the mitigation or the weakening of unwholesome states of mind and the strengthening and the supporting of wholesome states of mind. So it's almost like a universal remedy. All right, sometimes uh, in plant medicine, there's certain kinds of herbs and things that you can take that are kind of adaptogens. You know, they kind of like um, um, help you speed up if you need to speed up, but if you're already sped up, then they help you slow down. You know, it's kind of like just the right thing to, to have. And mindfulness is, li- is like that. And that's why there's such emphasis on it within the Buddhist system or one of the reasons why there's such emphasis on that. And the cultivation of mindfulness is a very important uh, uh, key element, is a highlight of the Buddha's set of teachings. 
So you're going to learn how to do that. We're going to coach you uh, and support you in, in doing that. And the morning meditation instructions will really, really key into that in a progressive kind of way. And then lastly, um, we have wise concentration. And wise concentration, if you, if you know the seven factors of awakening, if you've heard that teaching, you will remember that wise concentration opens as a consequence of a number of things that start with the cultivation of mindfulness, right? Concentration in insight practice is an outflow of mindfulness and the way mindfulness supports the arising of subsequent kind of mental states that strengthen concentration. So concentration is important too. And the door to it is through the cultivation of mindfulness initially. So if a mind is really well concentrated, one of the things that happens is that it has a tendency to uh, suppress the arising of hindrances in practice, meaning it kind of closes the door to the arising of a lot of unwholesome states. So then the practice can can really take off because you've kind of gone beyond that reef. But it takes takes time. The way through the hindrances is through learning to recognize them and practice with them. So we can develop concentration in insight meditation practice, but we can also develop concentration in metta practice or any of the other Brahma-viharas. We can directly cultivate samadhi there. Right? And that's kind of a double play, right? Because you're working on wise intention. You're directly cultivating wise intention as well as concentration by doing the practice of metta in an... Uh, committed kind of way. So that's the, the basic arc or the basic context of, of practice for you. And we'll be going back and touching on these points uh, again and again with you know the voices of different teachers and with everybody's your unique approach to it. But that's that's the basic plan. So that is going on. You're actually practicing the Eightfold Path while you're here, within the context of the Four Noble Truths, while you're doing um, meditation practice most of your day. So I think that's probably enough for tonight. What do you think? Yeah. So let me dedicate the merit of this then, and uh, after that there'll be a brief announcement. (coughs) May the merit of the practice that we've done here today be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere.
you will. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.